Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse and I live in North Yorkshire. This week, as COP26 takes place in Glasgow, we're looking at how healthcare actually contributes to climate change, what the impact of climate change is on population health, and what we can do to make our practice more sustainable, why environmental education and professional activism matters. Welcome back to my co-host, Kendall Moran, who's the student member of PNC, now a registered nurse working um, in the army, and the co-lead of the newly registered Nurses Network. Hello, Kendall. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Great to have you back to co-host, Kendall. Kendall, you've been really active in raising the issue of climate change within the Royal College of Nursing. Why does it matter so much to you? It's a big question. I'd say that my concern about climate change has grown quite gradually. I started caring about climate change because I love nature and I really wanted to work to preserve it. But as time's passed, I've become fairly terrified of living in a world where we don't manage to curb carbon emissions um, because the effect is going to be really devastating on humanity as well as the planet. And it's going to affect those who are already hard up the most. So this inequality is probably something we'll talk about a bit later, but it's really made me want to try and help people understand the magnitude of the problem and empower them to work to address it. Because I think the more people know about the problem, the more likely we are to be able to advert disaster. Um, And that's why Richard Rose and I, um, along with Anne-Marie Rafferty, who has been on the podcast before as well, put on an event at RCN Congress this year on climate change and antimicrobial resistance. Thanks, Kendall. And so I'm delighted that we're joined by two of those people. So special guests, Dr. Richard Smith, who's chair of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change, and Rose Gallagher as well. So first, hello, Richard. Hello. I'm really pleased to be here and glad to have the opportunity to talk to nurses about this most crucial of problems, the biggest threat to health in the world today, but also the biggest opportunity to improve global health. I know that you used to edit the the BMJ in a past life. Was climate change something that you were concerned with then? Or what was it, again, that really brought you to focus more on, on this? Yeah, I mean, actually, I was writing about climate change in the BMJ in the mid-90s. Right. So that's a long time ago. That's you know 25 years ago. And it didn't feel as urgent and pressing then as it does now. But we knew what was going to happen. In fact, people knew what was going to happen if we went on in the same old way in the 70s. And it's really rather tragic that it's taken us so long Mm. to really begin to take it seriously. I mean, I've seen a very big change in the last three years, which I think is partly Extinction Rebellion, partly Greta Thunberg, partly increasing evidence people have begun to take it much more seriously. And and as we're doing this broadcast, I mean, it's COP26 is is everywhere. It's really hitting people. And, And it's scaring a lot of people, I have to say. We're also joined by Rose Gallagher, who's the professional lead for infection prevention and control at the Royal College of Nursing, as well as leading on climate change and sustainability. Hello, Rose. And how are you today? Hello, Rachel. I'm Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. And Rose, what are kind of the links between those two elements of your role at the RCN? Because people might see them as quite different and distinct. 
you're right, they do. But for me, actually, they sit very well together. So my background is as a nurse, a specialist nurse working in infection prevention and control. And I suppose a a bit like climate change, the risks from antimicrobial resistance have been known about for decades. However, we've been quite slow um, in acting on these and we focused on creating new antibiotics rather than perhaps addressing some of the fundamental issues around preventing infection. They are both huge global challenges and, uh, you know, they are challenges to the ability to deliver health in the future as we know it now with modern medicine, but both bring huge opportunities if we tackle them from a preventative perspective. So for me, it's it's partly managing my workload, but it's also about looking at opportunities to really move things forward at pace and to prevent silo working, actually. So much of what we do as, as nurses and as healthcare professionals brings benefits to other issues and climate change and the prevention of infection and antimicrobial resistance are some really good examples of those. Richard, COP26, as you say, is everywhere at the moment. It's a yearly conference bringing together all the countries which are party to the UN's framework Convention on Climate Change. And this year is the 26th COP and a real opportunity to assess and strengthen commitments made during the Paris Climate Agreement of of 2015. And we know that failing to meet those commitments will have dire consequences for our planet. But what impact does climate change have more specifically on, on health and on healthcare? It had substantial effects. I mean, both the Lancet and the WHO have called this the major threat to the health in the world today. You can think of it on sort of three levels, which is a way I find quite convenient. So there are the very direct effects on people's bodies of heat, excessive heat, a big killer, air pollution, which is probably killing 10 million people a year around the world and killing lots of people in Britain. Then there are floods and fires and extreme weather. And then there are the sort of changing disease patterns as things like malaria and dengue begin to spread beyond where they are at the moment. But the really big effects actually are going to come from changes in the whole environment. So there are lots of places in the world today where it's no longer possible to grow the food that used to be grown. And so people are forced to migrate. So one of the reasons we're seeing so many people trying to cross the Mediterranean, trying to cross the English Channel, is because they are driven away because of climate change. And that's going to get steadily worse. There's very substantial evidence on how people's mental health is affected, particularly that of the young. There was a very disturbing report from the University of Bath and other universities the other day where they looked at uh, how... 16 to 25-year-olds felt about climate change, and they looked at 10,000 people in some 20 countries. And at least half of these young people were really terrified. Half of them thought that the planet, we were heading towards extinction of human beings. I think the way it will play out if we don't do something uh, about the current environment was that there will be people fighting over space, over water, over food. And I, and I worry that the way it could play out if we don't do something very quickly and very urgently is 
in nuclear war because of conflict, because of limited resources. That, of course, would be the greatest impact of all. And Richard, I'm interested in that question the other way around. So how healthcare impacts the environment. At the um, at the Congress event I mentioned earlier, you discussed the extent to which healthcare contributes to climate change. You spoke about the number of vehicles on the road that are linked to the NHS. And I was really surprised at how many there were. And also maybe more surprisingly, the contribution of medication to climate change. Can you tell us more a little bit more about that? Yes, well, starting with that figure, I mean, one in 20 vehicles on the road is linked to the NHS, which is perhaps surprising until you begin to think that the NHS is the biggest employer in the country. It's something like 10% of the economy. So that's people going to and from uh, appointments. It's staff going to and from work. It's um, supplies being delivered. And If we were to lump together the carbon footprint of all health systems, then healthcare would be the fifth largest emitter in the world. So a much bigger emitter than Britain alone. In the US, which of course is one of the biggest emitters, the healthcare system, which as we know is a rather profligate, out of control system, is 12% of the carbon emissions of the US. In Britain, the NHS and social care accounts for about 5%, but it's the single biggest public sector uh, emitter. And what's really disturbing is that if you look at what's happening with most health systems, and this, this was data included in the Lancet countdown, then you see that most health systems, including that in the US, have rising carbon emissions, which is clearly crazy when this is the major threat to health in the world today. But having sounded rather negative, the great thing here is that NHS England is the only system, health system in the world that not only has committed itself to get to net zero, but very, very importantly, has a plan uh, to do so. And when you look, and so obviously a, a starting point for trying to reduce your carbon footprint is to know, well, what's in included in the carbon footprint. And we now have, in fact, we have had for some years a carbon footprint of the NHS. And there are various points that emerge. As you said, about 20% of it, the single biggest component is drugs. But there's also obviously equipment, there's travel, there's heating buildings, there are anesthetic gases, inhalers. And I think a very important point to make here is that about 80% of the carbon footprint is driven by clinical decisions. You know, should this patient be admitted or not? Can we prevent this? What sort of treatment do we need to use? Do we need to use surgery? So it's important to recognise that Britain or any other country cannot get to net zero unless its health systems also get to net zero. And to be honest, we don't know entirely how to do that. Nobody knows exactly what a net zero health system looks like. But the NHS in England does have a plan for reaching it. And and that's one of the reasons that there's more prominence at COP this year around healthcare than has been the case in the past. NHS Wales also has a plan, but I think at the moment it doesn't have many resources devoted to making it happen, which is clearly essential. NHS Scotland, as I understand it, has had a plan, but as shelved it during the pandemic and will, I think, uh, release it very soon. 
And NHS Northern Ireland doesn't yet have a plan, but we'll need to have one. Yeah, fingers crossed they will going forward. You mentioned healthcare's appearance at COP, and I know you're attending this week. I think you're going tomorrow, actually. Why is the conference significant for healthcare professionals? I mean, it's significant for everybody. I mean, all the publicity has made very clear that we are rapidly running out of time to, to solve this problem. And this COP, which follows on from the Paris COP, so, you know, the commitments we have at the moment from individual countries just will not keep us below the, the very important figure of an increase on uh, pre-industrial levels of 1.5 degrees centigrade. We're at about 1.1, 1.2 at the moment. If we go above 1.5, we really don't know exactly what's going to happen. We know it's going to be bad but exactly how bad and where it will go from there. It's crucially important we stay below 1.5, and that involves all the different countries making their commitments, and not only making them, but sticking to them. Because the tragedy is that since the Paris Agreement, if we had been implementing what was agreed in Paris six years ago, then there would have been a 7% drop each year globally in carbon emissions. That's what was needed. But actually, what we've seen is a 7% increase each year, apart from 2020, when because of the pandemic, there was a a reduction, but that involved shutting down the whole economy. So it shows how drastically we need to change. And I think that healthcare professionals have not been as prominent in this debate as we should have been. Uh, And that's one of the reasons that at the UK Health Alliance, we organise this editorial saying we absolutely need to stay below 1.5 degree increase. And we can only do that if high income countries like Britain, like the US, provide financial support and technical assistance to the poorer countries, which are going to be the ones most affected. And we had that editorial published in over 220 journals all around the world, including the New England Journal of Medicine, Uh, the Chinese Science Bulletin, the National Medical Journal of India, the East African Medical Journal. And I think that's one of the things that health professionals can bring to this. We do have these global networks. So we've got to make out, because actually we we have a, a good message as well as a frightening message, because actually if we were to decarbonize our economy and our health systems, almost all of the changes we need to make will actually be beneficial to health. We have a a very kind of toxic, unhealthy environment at the moment. And if we make these changes, we can make things better. So we can come to people not only with a frightening message, but actually with a positive message. And of course, there's nobody better to do that than nurses. I mean, nurses are the most trusted people in our community. And that's true uh, across the world. They're more trusted than doctors. So if nurses are talking about this and saying, we've got to change, but actually the changes we need to make can bring benefits, then they're going to be listened to. And it's more likely to make the changes we need happen. Turning to a nurse, Rose, what would you be looking for to come out of COP26 this week. Do you think that it it can make a difference or is it, as some have characterised it, as a a talking shop fuelled by hot air and quite a lot of global emissions? Will it make a difference? I really hope it does. I mean, as Richard said, 
this is really a, a critical moment. And what we need from COP is not just commitments. So obviously, they're they're welcome, but we have to see those commitments delivered. And the announcement yesterday around stopping deforestation by 2030, the media were very good in pointing out, actually, we've had that commitment before and we didn't meet it. We didn't take adequate action on it. So agreeing commitments, agreeing commitments that we can achieve, but actually are ambitious to enable us to remain below 1.5 degrees are crucial. And of course, alongside that, it's one thing for our world leaders to agree that, but everyone has to be part of it. So there's a huge element of education, for want of a better word, that needs to happen to bring people with us. One of my concerns as a nurse, reflecting on the experience of the pandemic, which has brought with it a whole host of emotions as people's liberties were were reduced as they experienced different ways of, of living to those that they were used to. We are going to experience similar feelings and similar outbursts to those that we've seen during the pandemic, but perhaps on a, on a much bigger scale. So we have to be prepared for disruption. We have to be prepared to be clear on how we're going to communicate both the, the threat that it poses, but also the opportunities that, that it's bring. And in, in fact, I had a conversation with my husband this morning while we were out for our morning walk, and it involved a, a, a phrase which basically said, we're all doomed. And I had to <laughs> stop and correct him and say, no, we're not all doomed. We can't think like that. We We have to think in a positive way and we have to do what we can, even if that's small things, to contribute. And, and that activism and that getting involved, I think, is going to be one of the most helpful ways for people to, to deal with the changes, to shape the changes that come, but also to feel that they're, they're contributing and they're not being done to, because that's the big concern for me. Richard, you've already mentioned the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change, which you chair and was established in 2016. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? You've already mentioned some of it, its actions, but it, its aims and, and how it works. It brings together all the sort of major health bodies in Britain, including, I'm very pleased to say, the RCN, which has been there right from the beginning, but also the Royal Colleges of Physicians, Surgeons, psychiatrists, obstetricians, whereas it used to be in the past that it could be quite difficult to persuade people to join because they had to pay a small subscription, we now find that people are coming to us and saying we really want to be part of this. And obviously the basic idea is that if we all speak together as health people, then we're likely to have more influence than if we all speak separately. And our aims are to mitigate the effects of climate change, but also to to emphasise the benefits that can come to health from the kinds of changes we need to make. And then also how we need, I mean, the reality is that climate change is here now. Something like 7-8% of the hospitals in Britain are threatened by floods, uh, which I think we're unfortunately are just going to get more common a lot of places on the coast are threatened. So we, we, don't, we must work not only at mitigation, 
but also at adaptation. And our members between them have 900,000 members. The biggest chunk, of course, is from the RCN. And that's the majority of the NHS workforce. So we're potentially in a very powerful position. But one thing I have to emphasize is that we're actually quite a small organization. We have only 1.6 employees. And I fear that quite a lot of people listening to this podcast will not have heard of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change. We're not nearly as well known as, say, the RCN itself or the Royal College of Physicians or the BMA or the the Lancet. And so I emphasize to our members that you have to do things as well. And I also argue with our members, including the RCN, that this is now core business. Whereas it used to be that you could say, well, of course, we care about the planet and global health and we need to do our bit. I would say now that it is core business because it does mean changing clinical pathways. And that's what Royal Colleges are about, clinical standards. And it's about education, which is also what uh, colleges are about. So I say to them, it's core business. I also say that it's important to recognize that we have to have change at every single level, globally, nationally, regionally, within the health system, within our organizations, and personally and professionally. So I would say to the RCN, you know, you need to measure your carbon footprint, and it might shock you how big it is. And you then need to develop a plan, just like the NHS has, for getting it down to net zero by 2040 or 2045, whatever is manageable. So things like travel, I suspect, will be a large part of your footprint. And as we've seen during the pandemic, there are all sorts of possibilities for change there. Richard, the greatest impact of climate change is being experienced by those living in low and middle income countries, which is something I started to touch on earlier. These have not historically been significant contributors to emissions which cause it. What's the stance of the UK Health Alliance on the issue of climate justice? Climate justice is a huge issue, and it's one that really uh, galvanises young people. So one of the members of the alliance is Students for Global Health, and they care hugely about this. Oddly enough, I was looking this morning at a, a figure in The Economist of who produced all these gases, you know, where did they come from? And of course, they, they began to appear at the, the time of the Industrial Revolution in sort of the mid-18th century. And most of the gases have been produced by countries like Britain, the US, high-income countries. And who suffers the most? Well, it's mostly people in sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia and in Latin America. So it's the rich people who produce this problem. It's the poor people who are suffering the most. I spent many years going to and from Bangladesh, which is one of the most crowded countries on earth. And yet a third of this very crowded country is set to disappear very quickly. And already in the south of Bangladesh, people are having trouble getting fresh water. They can no longer grow rice in areas where seawater and salt has moved in. This is going to, in a sense, be the central problem at COP26. Will the high-income countries, 
make bigger cuts themselves they need to make. So we in Britain need to make bigger and more rapid cuts in our carbon consumption than do, say, people in Bangladesh. I mean, our carbon footprint is about five and a half tonnes a year per person. In Bangladesh, it's about half a tonne. So we're consuming, uh, you know, 10 times as much carbon as they are. So we need to make bigger cuts and we need to transfer resources and technical assistance to countries like Bangladesh. And you'll people will probably have heard that yesterday India made a commitment to get to net zero by 2070, which unfortunately is is far too late. But you can understand why India, where there are so many poor people that are suffering the consequences and yet producing very little carbon themselves, are saying, well, this doesn't look fair, that you're asking us to forego the kind of development that you've enjoyed. So this is one of the central tensions at COP. And I think how successful it is will be determined by the willingness of high-income countries like the US, like Britain, like the European Union, to make bigger cuts and transfer resources. I I heard John Kerry, the US lead on climate change, giving a marvellous talk the other day at the London School of Economics. And he was saying, you know, we need to deal in trillions of dollars, not billions of dollars. And I think that's a message that Narendra Modi, the the Prime Minister of India, was emphasising earlier this week. Richard, I saw your blog actually sort of reporting on that that speech of John Kerry at the LSE. What were really the, the highlights of that to you? I mean, oddly enough, it reduced me to tears because I think he spoke about it exactly how it is. And yet, you know, he ended by saying, I head to Glasgow full of optimism. He's been working on this subjects, you know, since the 70s. I mean, he was at the original Rio conference Mm. that sort of started COP26. And he was very, very crucial in the Paris negotiations. And of course, it was a tragedy for the world when, you know, when Donald Trump was elected and pulled out of Paris and denied climate change. And, Mm. and, And obviously, it made many countries very suspicious of the US. Well, we might have all these fine words from John Kerry and Joe Biden, but, you know, are they going to suddenly be gone and we're going to have Donald Trump again, Mm -hmm. throwing it all into reverse? But he was saying, you know, this is it. You know, he said the stakes could not be higher as we go to Glasgow. But he emphasised, he actually was optimistic because he said, you know, many, many countries are stepping up to the plate. It's very different from how it was at the time of Paris when people had to some extent to be dragged to the table. No one now is denying this is happening. Everyone accepts they have to do something. And there is this recognition that there needs to be this transfer of funds and assistance Mm. to low-income countries. He also emphasised very strongly the way that business and financial institutions are setting up. I mean, clearly they've been part of the problem, but they're also going to have to be part of the solution. And in many ways, you know, a lot of a lot of companies and industries are ahead of where, for example, health systems are. I mean, lots there's always a worry that some of these are just empty promises, green washing. But nevertheless, a lot of companies and a lot of investors have got very, very serious about this. And you don't want to invest in fossil fuels 
not just because it's the bad thing to do, it's morally wrong, but because actually that's not going to be a good investment. It makes much more sense to invest in renewables. So he does see uh, a big change. And, and I thought it was a very fine talk in the sense that he spelt out the reality. He didn't pull his punches. And yet at the same time, he said, there are reasons for optimism. People are really waking up to this on every level. Do you share that optimism? It's going to be very tough. I, I don't think people realise quite how hard it is to get to net zero. You know, it, it's we, we throw around this idea of net zero, but mm. actually it's quite... So one of the things, actually, if you look at our, our website and the promise, it, we have, at the Alliance, we, we've outlined the things that we think need to happen if we're going to stay below 1.5. And one is that the rich countries like Britain make bigger cuts. And mm. we have calculated that the kind of cut we need to make is between now and 2040, when we would hope to be at net zero, we would have an allowance, each of us, of about half a tonne a year of carbon. And yet, as I said, at the moment, we're consuming about five and a half tonnes. Mm -hmm. And about 2.7 tonnes is needed to heat the average home. So we've got to make that transition to you know, getting rid of gas boilers very quickly if we fly to to and from New York, that is, you know, that's a ton. So that's twice our annual allowance in one flight. It's going to be difficult to make these trade-offs. I mean, of course, we hope that eventually there'll be hydrogen-powered planes. And one of the big differences, I think, between the European Union and the US is that the US, you know, is placing a lot more belief and confidence in technology. The technology that will suck carbon dioxide out of the air, all sorts of technical solutions, which are out there. Mm. But whether they can operate on the scale necessary, I, I think we have to be sceptical about that, which is why we have to, we can't, it would be crazy to rely on technology. We have to make changes at every level, including in our personal lives, in order to have a chance of staying below 1.5. We can't rely on technology, but nevertheless, I'm sure technology will be able to help us. This whole issue of climate change, the impact of climate change, is wrapped up in work not only of COP, but also on the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, because how we promote sustainable development, particularly in low and middle income countries is is critical, but how we do that in a, a fair way, as, as you've said, Richard. Rose, I know that you've led on some of the work on the sustainable development goals at, at the RCN. SDG 13 is focused specifically on climate mm. action, but actually climate change is kind of intertwined into a number of those goals. Where would you see kind of our focus as, as nursing in relation to the achievement of the sustainable development goals? You're right. So there is a specific goal, goal number 13, on climate change. But climate change, a, a bit like the prevention of infection, uh, actually, in antimicrobial resistance, is a thread that runs through all the goals and sort of binds them together. And the issue of climate justice, for me, really is at the heart of the sustainable development goals. It can be quite a hard, I think, for many nurses here to think about the sustainable development goals as something we live and breathe 
on a daily basis because it's around inequalities it's around communities as like Richard's described in Bangladesh or, or or in Africa that for example don't have access to clean running water who experience hunger that's not to say people don't experience hunger here in the UK but hung, hunger on a regular basis due to famine etc or don't have access to schools and education for women and girls so they can feel very distant what we're trying to do as part of our approach to sustainability in the RCN is is one to keep showcasing the sustainable development goals and to talk about them in terms of the UK's contribution to meeting these global goals which we've all committed to do and then where healthcare and nursing makes the contribution so awareness raising is important education and then showcasing what nurses have done here in the UK the RCN published a report called Leaving No One Behind earlier this year that gave some case studies around what nurses were doing that contributed to some of the specific sustainable development goals. So nurses working with gangs and violence, addressing female genital mutilation, or even um, the work that's been done on reducing plastic and improving procurement all contribute. So what we have to do, I think, is to help nurses visualise how what they do in their roles, the the work they do in, in their communities actually does make a contribution, a small contribution, but a large contribution overall when we put it all together to meeting the sustainable development goals. We've talked a bit already with you, Rose, about some of the work that the RCN has done. And and in 2019, at our Congress, members passed an emergency resolution on climate change, acknowledging the climate emergency and calling on our RCN Council to lobby healthcare providers to develop some of those policies and strategies that, that we've talked about. And I think certainly, like Richard, welcome the NHS aim to um, to net zero. But of course, you know, healthcare is provided in lots of places outside of the NHS as well. So I wonder if we can just talk a, a little bit more about how we as nurses can make our, our practice more environmentally responsible and, and sustainable. Mm. You're absolutely right that this is more than the NHS, but I, I you know, we have to take our hat off to the NHS and the Green NHS team for the, for the work that they're doing in, in moving this ahead our membership within the rcn obviously includes those working in non-nhs settings so the independent sector and that can be private hospitals or it can be care homes for example and in fact most care is provided in the community um and i feel that this is an area we really need to explore more in terms of what does sustainable nursing practice look like? And I don't actually have the answer to that at the moment. It will involve, I think, a few things. So we will have to look at the skills we have and the knowledge that we use to deliver nursing care in a, in a sustainable way. So how we approach nursing, how we deliver nursing, nursing care will need to not a radical rethink, perhaps, but certainly will need 
challenge in terms of how can we work differently that is more sustainable. And that's going to be more than, for example, all community and district nurses moving to electric cars. That might be a solution in in the ideal world, but there are practicalities around cost of that. Skills and knowledge, ways of working. So how we manage our clinics, where we provide care, how we put prevention or the promotion of health first rather than reacting to ill health, I think is going to be absolutely crucial. So there's this message around prevention, better health that also delivers carbon reductions and and positive changes to the position we're in now, I I think is crucial. But we, we have to sell it in a way that the public find acceptable and then how, how do we know that we've actually made a difference? That The final bit is around what we use to deliver care. So nursing, as we've said before, is the largest part of the um, workforce here in the UK and globally. So the number of consumables we use, the type of consumables we use, that I think is a real opportunity to uh, make an, an impact. But we also have to challenge ourselves on being better at how we use things. So this this idea of proportionality, we perhaps have been a bit on occasions lapse about wastage in the NHS because there is always another box of gloves, there's always another dressing, there's always, you know, more of X, Y and Z that we can use if we drop it on the floor or or don't think about the size we need in advance. So Supporting nurses to use products in a more sustainable way is going to be absolutely critical. I couldn't agree more. And and ensuring that we use the evidence to um, yes. identify when we need to use those resources and really Ab- critically absolutely. think about that. Um, so for me, the pandemic has been a real opportunity to challenge my thinking. So as an infection prevention and control nurse, I very much sit on a day-to-day basis in the mindset of an infection prevention and control nurse. And there is a way that we write guidance, that there is a way that we approach situations that we've done for as long as I've been in infection prevention and control, which is about 20 years now. And I think now is the perfect time to challenge our assumptions and our culture. And I say that because what we write in policies and guidance, whether that is at the national level or at the local level, drives how we use consumables. So if you take personal protective equipment, for example, which has been a real contentious issue during the pandemic, if we even think simply about gloves, how we describe, for example, standard and transmission-based precautions will direct how many gloves are, are used. So if we keep it really simple around blood and body fluids where we know there, there is evidence to support the safety of healthcare workers, then we not only improve compliance, but we, re- we reduce inappropriate use and wastage where they are not required, for example, in changing a bed, holding somebody's hand, helping to feed a patient. Those are not evidence-based scenarios, but those that use and implement the policies at the clinical level 
interpret the way that we write policies to mean that that it's acceptable to do that. So we've got a lot of challenge to do amongst ourselves to how can we write policies and procedures in a way that protects those we need to protect and reduce risk, but actually not inadvertently drive unnecessary use of items. Yeah, so having those conversations and trying to influence those policies could be our way of of trying to bring climate activism into into our practice, perhaps. You verged towards talking about um, climate education there. Um, How do you think we can improve climate education within the profession? Well, one of the ways that we're approaching this here in the RCN is we're developing an online education module of about 200 hours to support our members whose roles involve sustainability or who have an interest in sustainability. And we hope to launch that next year. So that would be a really good way that members can get involved. Obviously, that depends on funding, but there are ways that um, members can access funding to, to support that. Education, though, takes many forms. So using networks, the creation of local champions, many of whom will be nurses, and looking at reaching out to members. We need to, to do a really big piece of work with our members around understanding not only what they think the priorities are, but their needs. And, and that will help us to shape what education and building knowledge looks like in the future. Thank you, Rose. And Richard, as you head off to to COP um, tomorrow, I think. What would really be your take-home message for listeners of the podcast today on the things that we've talked about? I mean, my message would be you can make a difference. Don't think that this is an insoluble problem. Don't think that it's somebody else's problem. You need to make changes. And they could be very small changes. And you need to make changes in your both as as individuals in terms of what you eat, how you travel, how much you buy, how you use your money, but also in a professional sense. And I would urge you to talk to patients about climate change issues. I think people have been nervous about doing this. But there was rather a good blog in the BMJ by Matt Sawyer, who's a GP, who describes in very simple terms how he has been talking to patients about climate change in a clinical context for a long time. So take the, he uses the example of respiratory disease. We know that you know, lots of consultations with GPs and practice nurses are around respiratory infections. And we'd always talk about smoking. Do you smoke? Have you smoked? But people haven't tended to talk about air pollution, uh, but he does. And that's a way of linking the, the, the patient's clinical problem with the issue of climate change. And we know that most, I mean, everybody is aware that this is happening. They may not be aware of how serious it is and what exactly they need to do, but people know about climate change. And as I said earlier, lots of people, particularly younger people, are very anxious about it. And remembering that nurses are the most trusted people in the community and that nurses are in every community, then I think nurses have a very crucial role to play in combating climate change. Rose, do you think there are grounds for optimism? I suppose the only thing I would say is that 
what I feel optimistic about is that I am hearing a lot of conversations around climate change and how we can be more sustainable amongst the networks that I work with. So everyone is talking about how they can change their their practice, how endoscopy can be greener, how surgery can be greener, how we can look at supporting community nurses to be greener. So that gives me optimism. And, And actually, one of the things that I found most reassuring was a a webinar I took part in the other week with the Association of Nurses for Healthy Environments. And we were talking to three nurses, uh, one from South America and two that were working in Africa. And for the first time, actually, I felt reassured that nurses internationally and across the globe were starting to look at this issue and to address it both in their own communities and at the national level. So I do think there is a movement building and and I feel reassured that we're not lone voices anymore. So that's the only thing that I would add actually at this point. So we could talk for much longer, I'm sure, but we've come to the end of the podcast We'll be back in two weeks and we'd love to know what you would like us to talk about. So tell us what you're interested in or concerned about in the world of nursing and healthcare by tweeting us at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters. We'll do our best to cover them in future episodes of the podcast. But for this week, thanks to our special guests, to Dr. Richard Smith. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. And to Rose Gallagher. Thank you for having me. And... Special thanks to my co-host, Kendall Moran. Thanks very much, Rachel. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word about Nursing Matters. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.